Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, Novak Djokovic's champion in Cincinnati. And what a final. What a final against Carlos Alcaraz. Was it the best, best of three set match I've ever seen? Look, I don't know. We always have recency bias when it comes to these things. But I will say this. I can't remember being surprised so many times while watching one match. And at the end of the day, I felt an immense love for this sport while I was watching this match because the reason we watch is for that feeling of being surprised and being shocked. What's the fun without that moment of not being able to believe your eyes? And that happened so many times. It wasn't necessarily always the quality of tennis. And yeah, there were moments where that was the, that was the fireworks and the most impressive part. But the number of twists and turns was just impeccable. And I think only when you have two players on the court with the mental strength of these two is a match like this possible where so many times you think you know which way it's going and it goes the other direction. Every time you thought this match was zigging, it zagged. So allow me to begin this analysis by going over the twists and turns quickly. Djokovic breaks at love pretty early in the first set. And given what we had seen from Alcaraz all week long, there was kind of like a, oh, here we go again feeling. The inconsistency, the shot selection issues, Djokovic looking quite sharp. He holds for 4-2. But he started to look a little bit sick in that 4-2 game. And lo and behold, Djokovic would lose 9 of the next 12 games. Physically bad shape. He's down 4-2 in the second. And at this point, you think this match is only going one way. And unfortunately, you're thinking the match was kind of a disappointment because Novak wasn't physically at his best after the very beginning. But Carlitos loses focus, gets sloppy, back on serve, goes to a tiebreak, Alcaraz has a match point in the tiebreak. At that point, you think, well, this is likely it. But no. 
The match point is saved. Djokovic wins the tiebreak. Third set, Novak's playing awesome. He's applying so much pressure. He's digging into every Alcaraz service game. He breaks serve. He goes up 5-3. He has two chances, two championship points to break for the match. Carlito saves them. Novak serves for the match. He has two championship points in that game. Can't convert. Alcaraz breaks 5-all. The five-all game is awesome as well. They go to a tie break. And Alcaraz's hand cramps. And in a match where it felt like neither man could possibly lose, both of them were invincible and it just didn't matter. Everyone would always come back from everything. Those hand cramps were probably the lethal blow. This kind of reminded me, in the way it ebbed and flowed, of the Nadal-Medvedev-Australian Open final because we knew coming in that physicality was probably going to be a large part of it. There was a lot of debate coming into that Australian Open final. Who was going to hold up physically? And man, they were probably going to play a lot of long rallies. And best of five, that was probably going to play a big role in the match. And it did. But it did in a very surprising and interesting way, in a way that wasn't static. And this was the same. Because in the first set, the Heat beat Djokovic. And those who were remarking in the comments about how Novak played every day at night and that it wasn't hot any of the days and that Djokovic has kind of a history of sometimes struggling in the heat, although I really don't think it's happened that often lately in his career. I think it's been pretty darn rare. Nonetheless, those thoughts were correct. When it comes to heat, if you're not used to it, it doesn't really matter how fit you are. You can have great fitness, but if you're not playing in heat much at all, and then suddenly you're in 95 on a hard court in the sun, you might react the way that Novak reacted. Which is like, essentially, look, I don't know if you can slap this diagnosis on it, but Novak said he felt like he had heat stroke. He looked like it too. He looked like it too. This should have cost Djokovic the match. Because as I alluded to, his issues lasted well into the second set, his physical issues. And this is where I think Alcaraz will be the most regretful. And this, I think, was the biggest learning experience for Carlitos in the match. He lost focus. He took his foot off the gas. He might have started to take the match for granted just a little bit. Because, boy, did he get sloppy. Let's do the math here. Let's do an exercise. So there was a three-game stretch from 4-2, Alcaraz up, to 5-4, Djokovic up. Three games in a row for Novak. Only one break of serve. Unforced errors in those games were 7-2. to two. Service winners that Novak hit in the two service games, five. 
And that includes second serve return misses that aren't counted in the seven unforced errors. All right. So seven unforced errors, five service winners, seven plus five, that's 12. How many points did Djokovic win from 4-2 down to 5-4 up? 12 points. Novak won 12 points and Alcaraz did not make him earn it. And it was at a time when Novak was still recovering physically. You could tell that it was starting to come back, but it wasn't quite there. And crucially, Djokovic had been taking tablets, replenishing. The sun was going down. And when it, when it came to this match, sunset meant Novak rise. But Alcaraz was truly, truly let Novak off the hook in that stretch of games with the missed returns and the unforced errors. And then by the end of the match, and similar to, I'll go back to the Australian Open match and kind of tie that together. First two and a half sets, it looked like Medvedev had all the rally tolerance, the stronger legs, and Nadal was huffing and puffing and just looked like the less fit player. And then suddenly Medvedev was cramping. Suddenly Medvedev was point shortening. And it was Nadal late in the fifth set who had a full gas tank of energy. Similarly, this match started. It looked like it was going to be decided by Djokovic's lack of fitness because of the heat. It ends in Alcaraz at the very end dealing with these cramps in his hands. And I don't know if there's going to be disagreement or not with the notion that the hand cramps really affected the tiebreak, but let me lay it out like this. It was a one love point. It was the second point of the tiebreak after Alcaraz double faulted on the first point of the breaker. And it's a 20 shot rally, pure guts by both players. Fantastic point. And it ends with Alcaraz slapping a two-handed forehand 30 feet out because his hand cramped. From that point on, Alcaraz made one return of serve. One. And, you know, at 3-2, at it was a second serve return that Alcaraz basically tried to almost uh, saber and chip charge. I got that wrong. Uh, it was act that was actually three all. No. Oh no no no! That was two love. So two love second serve out wide. Alcaraz just tries to chip charge and misses really really badly on a chip return. It's a return that like obviously the hand affected in a big way because of the way he kind of charged there. Basically, I don't think he wanted to hit any forehands. I think he wanted to just chip the return and come to net and hit a volley, and he thought that was his best chance. He missed it really, really badly. Uh, he made one return, again, returning and charging at 3-2. Djokovic with a couple of gifts, not making Alcaraz hitting forehands on the next couple points. Uh, then it was 3-all. But after that, Djokovic served to the forehand. Alcaraz did take a a pretty big rip, but that went long, and it wasn't a great serve either. And then at 5-4, kick serve out wide by Djokovic, and Alcaraz mishit a block return on the backhand side. 
And then on match point, the second serve, Djokovic serves it to the Alcaraz forehand. That return wasn't even anywhere near the court. It was way, way, way out. It was a very strange return. And I just don't think that Alcaraz would have been so poor on return had the hand not been an issue at that point. If not, if he wasn't feeling it at all, then at least it was, I think, weighing on his head because that was a major letdown that just wasn't really in line with how the rest of the match was uh, was going. Alcaraz cramping at the 340 mark. What do I make of it? Three hours, 40 minutes. It's to be expected. That's what I make of it. In these kinds of conditions with the kind of week that Alcaraz had, that is what happens. That is what happens when in your second week of action, back-to-back, you've played six straight three-set matches. That comes back to bite you, no matter how good your fitness is. And ultimately, I'm impressed that the fitness was, was good enough to look so, so good for so, so long. The age thing is not a factor to me, uh, and it was a big-time rebuttal. And let me be clear about this. I'm going to talk about the comment section in my preview video, but I want you guys, if you disagree with me, to comment. Uh, but I am going to push back against one of the more popular comments, which was that, how could I, th how could I think that Alcaraz was going to have an endurance issue and Djokovic was not going to have an endurance issue given their age difference. How could I possibly think that? And I just want to hammer this home because I continue to be passionate about pushing back against this narrative that age means something when it comes to these conversations about endurance. Alcaraz being 20 years old does not help his endurance. How's Holger Runa's endurance? How was Novak Djokovic's endurance when he was 20? Andy Roddick on TC Live after the match said that when he played youngster Novak, the game plan was to extend rallies because he knew that he would get tired. That was the game plan against Novak Djokovic when he was 20. So stop with the 20-year-olds don't get tired. 20-year-olds do get tired, but Alcaraz has very good endurance. But I just want to make that point. And then when it comes to Djokovic, how many times are we going to doubt his endurance when it has never been an issue to this point in his career, uh, you know, 30s and above, right? It has never, he has never seeming, he has never seemed vulnerable in the endurance category in his old age. It it hasn't happened. So I'm not surprised that in the end, Alcaraz had a physical blip and Novak, as soon as the sun went down, was all right. Point shortening skills, though, and this has been something that has also come up in the past with Novak, that's been key. You know, that when the fitness, for whatever reason, 
isn't 100% there. In this case, it was because of the heat. Earlier this year at the Australian Open, it was because of the hamstring injury. There have been moments in, in other big matches in his career. I'm thinking of uh, an Australian Open final against Dominic Team, where there have been portions in the match where the fitness kind of goes away and comes back. But in those moments where it goes away, what can Djokovic do? And while, yes, in the second set, Alcaraz had a really rough patch of tennis. There was also a lot of things that Novak was doing at a really high level that was saving his legs and biding his time in order to recover. He had his best net rushing set in the second set. And I'm going to read you off net rushes by set. In the first set, he was 5 of 6. In the second set, he was 12 of 16. And in the third set, he was 5 of 11. So his best volleying set by far was in the second set. And the skill that Novak displayed at net in the match as a whole was marvelous. It was top shelf stuff in the volleying department. What about unreturned serves? Well, this is something that we were talking about coming into the match as well. Given how Wimbledon went and Alcaraz seemingly getting more free points than Djokovic... That being something that was unexpected. Were we going to get a reversal? Well, in the first set, we did not. But I think a lot of that was because of Djokovic's physical condition. But I will say that Alcaraz had 41% unreturned first serves. Djokovic, 29%. In the second set, Novak dominated. Novak, 54%. Alcaraz, 24%. In the third set, and this is where I would expect it to be. This is kind of realistically where I think it should be. Djokovic, 40% first serves unreturned. Alcaraz, 31% first serves unreturned. So when Novak was at his weakest, that's when he was hitting the most unreturnables and when he was finishing the most volleys. And that was important. Overall, tactics-wise, uh, Novak had... Great strategy on his second serve. Great execution on his second serve. This was crucial because Novak ended up winning 64% of his second serve points. Alcaraz, on average this year, Alcaraz's opponents win 46.8% of his second of second serve points. So I know it's not this surprising or bold thing to say that Djokovic is better than Alcaraz's average opponent, but that is... Uh, that's massive. I mean, Alcaraz is fourth best on tour in second serve return. And for Novak to be at 64% points one is a marvelous stat for Novak. And uh, let's go to some film study to kind of look at what he did. So Alcaraz backed up pretty early in the match on the second serve. And Djokovic started uh, mixing in the serve and volley on the second serve, which was really effective. In fact, he did it twice both times successfully in this absolutely essential second set tiebreak. First one was at 3-4. This was a very, very silly shot by Alcaraz. He tried to lob it. And, I mean, look where Novak is on the serve and volley. How are you going to successfully hit a lob on this ball? I mean, even Djokovic and the overhead issues that he has doesn't justify this shot selection. So Novak finishes, actually not this overhead, but he finishes the next overhead. And uh, you know what that looks like, so I won't show you via the screenshots. Let's go to the next one. 
This is at six all in the tie break. This one's on the deuce side. Djokovic goes to the slice out wide, comes in. Alcaraz this time hits the sensible return, which is the dipping return. But Novak hits a, a really nice low backhand volley, angles it off cross court. Alcaraz, he's so fast, you can't finish the first volley. Ain't no way. He gets there. But look at the anticipation for Djokovic. He read that this pass was going cross court. The line is open, but Alcaraz was already at this point going cross. So Djokovic is right there, and he directs this volley into the open court, which somehow Alcaraz gets his racket on, which is just silly stuff, but he doesn't actually make it. Now, Alcaraz adjusts. He says, forget this Novak serve and volley stuff. You know, we can't let him off the hook that easily. We got to make him work. So let's stand up and shut down the serve and volley. And ultimately, throughout the third set, with the exception of maybe three points, Djokovic was hitting really good, high-quality second serves to combat Alcaraz's aggressive positioning. Uh, this was an excellent placement, uh, a really well-placed kick-serve tee where Alcaraz, you know, he's trying to be aggressive, but he doesn't want to slice. He doesn't want to slice the second serve return, but this is such a good second serve that he has to. And now Novak crushes this next forehand and it's a winner. I, I don't know what happened on the screenshot there. It didn't work, but Djokovic hit a forehand winner off of this. And then here's another example. This is at, this is with, uh, Djokovic facing break point, trying to serve out the match. This time it's on the ad side. He goes massive T. Alcaraz can't take a big swing on it at all. Doesn't make great contact. Look at the speed gun. 120 miles per hour. And Djokovic, heavy plus one forehand cross court, wins him the point. That was actually the game, though where Novak double-faulted twice, and Alcaraz did hit one forehand return winner that led to the break of serve. So, ultimately, that was the one game where I felt Djokovic's second serve didn't work all that well. For the most part, it was. He was doing such a good job of kind of toggling the slower kick serve and volley if Alcaraz is back, but if he's in, gotta hit it big. Just, just have to. He did such a good job of that. Novak was cleaner from the back of the court. That was another advantage. And a lot of that had to do with uh, superior discipline in the shot selection. Let me show you this. Uh, this is three all third set. It's deuce. This is Djokovic trying to break Alcaraz's serve. And Novak rolls this forehand cross court. This is a a really high quality point, so much so that I think both players are kind of feeling it. There might be a little bit of ooing and eyeing uh, in the crowd, and Alcaraz gets carried away here because this is a really excellent forehand trade cross court. It breaks the sideline. Alcaraz is on the run. His feet are not set, but he's going to try to gun this forehand flat down the line, and he, he hits the tape. 
it just seemed like when Alcaraz was on the run on his forehand, oftentimes he'd he'd go way too big. He'd take a huge risk. And that's what Novak wants. He's going to keep the ball deep. He's going to try to keep Alcaraz moving. And he wants him to pull the trigger from irresponsible positions. And he definitely got quite a bit of that. Uh, here's another example, I believe. Is this another example? Oh, no. This is just showing uh, This is showing the next point. But, yeah, let, let's do it. Here's uh, th the next point after that slap forehand trigger pull unforced error by Alcaraz. Uh, this is Djokovic on a second serve return, taking it very, very early before it can kick up above his shoulders and therefore getting a solid strike to Alcaraz's backhand. No time to run around to hit the forehand and Alcaraz misses the first ball backhand. That's a major key in the match. Throughout the match, when Novak was getting his returns to Alcaraz's backhand, so, so key. So pivotal. Because when he wasn't, it just wasn't the same. He was. It's. It completely shifts the paradigm of the point. And the reality was Novak was doing a great job on the second serve return of making Alcaraz hit first ball backhands, which is why Alcaraz was below 50% on second serve points one. On the first serve return, not as much because Alcaraz was doing some great things. Let me save that. Uh, I'll talk about some of those things uh, a little bit later. Here's another undisciplined shot selection example. This is in the first set. This is a love 30 point. I figured, you know, Alcaraz would want to be pretty hunkered down in such a big moment in the first set, not wanting to go down love 40, but that wasn't the case. Djokovic hits a really good deep backhand cross court here. It's not the width this time like it was on the last. The last one wasn't a good time to pull the trigger because of Djokovic's width. This time, it's not good because of Djokovic's depth, but Carlitos tries to make this change of direction, and look at that ball fly. It's not even close. So the discipline uh, made a really big difference. Converting opportunities with the forehand was also much better for Novak in this match, and let's kind of shout out the match point save. This would be a good time to do that. Here it is. Djokovic uh, with a great spot serve out wide. Gets Alcaraz to take the left hand off the racket. Stretch return. Decent return. And now it's up to Novak to generate and make something happen with his forehand. And he does on the inside in. Finishes it off. Boom. Now I want to talk about some of Alcaraz's tactics. And as I talk about Alcaraz's tactics, there's going to be some areas where they were very, very effective. And then there are going to be some, some things where I'm going to turn it around and talk about how Novak did a pretty good job of countering it. Here's a look at Alcaraz's first serves on the ad side. And it shows you that Carlitos's kick serve was once again a massive, massive problem for Novak. An unsolvable riddle for Novak, just like it was in Madrid. Utter domination. 
17 points won, three points lost for Alcaraz when he got it into the backhand third of the court. But even when it drifted more towards Djokovic's backhand side, but it was in the middle, even then Alcaraz dominated, nine points won, two points lost. Uh, it was when Alcaraz went to Djokovic's forehand that he was losing m more points. And on the deuce side, Alcaraz was not nearly as dominant going either direction. Lively, bouncy court. Alcaraz with the great kick serve. And Novak just... It's tough. You know, I don't think Djokovic is doing anything really poorly... But frankly, this is such an outstanding play from Alcaraz, and it's hard to really have an answer for it. So here's one kick serve uh, to save a break point at 5-all. This one was very, very key. He gets uh, Novak to chip, and it's a serve and volley. There, there were a lot of kick serves out wide to the serve and volley. That was effective. Look at the speed. This is a first serve that's 88 miles per hour, but it doesn't matter. It's all about the width and the bounce, the height of bounce that he's getting off of the court. It's not always serve and volley, though. Pretty effective when he stays back. Here's a kicker out wide in the second set. It's shoulder to head height. This backhand's really, really high. And Novak's going to make pretty clean contact with it. He's going to get decent direction, decent depth, but guess what? It's just too slow. There's not enough juice on the ball. So that gives time, that gives Alcaraz enough time to run around, load up his forehand, and it's really hard for Novak to be recovered into the middle of the court at this point. So it's kick serve wide, forehand inside in, and that pattern is so repeatable and so dominant for Alcaraz in this match. In the baseline rallies, Alcaraz is looking to do a similar thing. Get the ball up high on Djokovic's backhand, just like I suspected pre-match that that would be a really big emphasis, a really big focus for Alcaraz. Look at his forehand direction here. 63% into the ad side. He wants to take his heavy topspin forehand into Djokovic's backhand. But when it comes to the effectiveness of that pattern, I think that it's a little bit less clear that it was a winning tactic. Now, sometimes it was, certainly, but I do think that Djokovic did a good job of hanging tough and trying to protect his contact point well enough where his baseline consistency was, was still giving Alcaraz uh, trouble, especially once Novak was physically healthy enough to be patient in the baseline exchanges. And a good example of this is actually on set point in the second set, where Alcaraz is going to hit some high heavy balls, then he's going to hit some backhand slice, Some even there was a forehand slice in there, Djokovic hits a backhand slice, now he hits a low forehand. You see Alcaraz is keeping the ball low here. This is a forehand cross court. Now Alcaraz is no, is not going to slice. Now he's going to hit that high heavy ball to Djokovic's backhand. And it's a really good one. Lots of topspin. 
Not too much depth. You actually don't want to get too much depth on this ball. Otherwise, there's not enough time for the ball to get up above Djokovic's shoulders. So this is a great position for Alcaraz. This is a high contact point for Djokovic, and he's way behind the baseline. The topspin pushed him back. That's good. But Novak just does a good job of getting width on this ball and making Alcaraz hit a backhand. This is attackable. The ball is pretty slow, but Carlitos just can't execute on this aggressive backhand. And if you're Novak, you're happy because at least you made him hit a backhand, which is just, it's better than allowing him to have a forehand. And that is where you can poke a hole in Alcaraz's tactic, which again, I'm not saying it was a not smart tactic. It's literally a tactic that in the preview, I suggested. I think it's a great tactic, but I do also want to be balanced here and communicate what the downside of that tactic is. The downside is that it creates the backhand-to-backhand exchanges. If you're going into Djokovic's backhand, you are in part forcing yourself to hit more backhands. Alcaraz in the match hit 212 forehands and 203 backhands. That's a pretty even split for a guy who's constantly looking to run around. Djokovic, 264 backhands, 168 forehands. Novak on the forehand was hitting majority cross court. 56% 56% cross court, 44% line. So you see you see what I'm saying here? If you go to Djokovic's forehand, you're more likely to get a forehand. If you go to Djokovic's backhand, you're more likely to get a backhand. So is it really the right play for Alcaraz to go so often to Djokovic's backhand if what he's really looking for, if he's going to do a lot of damage and be very, very dangerous and use the biggest weapon on the court, which is his forehand. If he's going to use that, maybe he's better off going to Novak's forehand. I hope that that wasn't insanely difficult to follow. Last thing is the Alcaraz returning. I mentioned the free points. That was a positive for Djokovic. You know, Novak, the the number of unreturnables he was getting was uh, really, really good for him. And very needed. In the second set, 54%. In the third set, 40%. Both pretty healthy numbers. But Alcaraz was uh, not blocking the return as much as he was at Wimbledon. At Wimbledon, it was very passive strategy on the first serve return. Because he trusted his ability to turn defense into offense. And he was testing Djokovic's ability to generate off of low pace balls on the plus one. He figured, I'm so fast, your forehand can be a little bit underpowered if you're taking my speed into account. So let me give you a floating ball, chip return, and then I don't mind running into a corner and turning defense into offense. That was happening so often in this Wimbledon match. And you wonder... You wonder 
what the reason for Alcaraz not hitting the chip return as much in this match, what the reason for that is. It could be that it was a mistake. It also could be that Djokovic was threatening with the serve and volley, doing a better job of threatening with the serve and volley, and therefore Alcaraz thought that he might be in trouble if he chipped it, and doing better with those forehands in the middle of the court, being more forceful, using the, you know, even the lively bounce might have make, made it a little bit harder for Alcaraz to defend. And therefore, Carlitos felt like he had to do more on the first serve return, which in part led to Djokovic getting more service winners. So I'll, I'll leave you with this. We go into the U.S. Open. They're head-to-head tied 2-2 for their careers. And there is so much still to think about. What does Djokovic do about the kick serve to his backhand on the ad side? Does Alcaraz stick with the plan, if they play at the U.S. Open, of taking his forehand with heavy topspin into Djokovic's backhand? Or does he change that up? And once again, what does the returning look like? How does Alcaraz return the second serve? Because he did it multiple ways in this match, and Djokovic met it with different tactics. And also, how does... Um, how does Alcaraz return the first serve? Does he take more of a Wimbledon approach or is he a little bit more aggressive like he was in this match? So many different moving parts. But the fact is, this was another Djokovic-Alcaraz match that hinged on a couple points that could have gone either way. And you could say that about three of their total of four matches. A match like this is actually harder to analyze than a match that isn't so epic, so surprising. Because in a in a normal match, well, first of all, if one player creates significant advantages over their opponent, then my job is to really pinpoint what those advantages are and what the important, most important things that they were doing that allowed them to win this match. When, the, when a match is this close, those things are not in sharp focus, especially when those things are fairly diverse. In the case of Alcaraz, yeah, it was kind of one tactic over and over again that was certainly effective on the ad side. But other than that, there were a lot of diverse tactics. So then you go to those key moments if you can't analyze major patterns that created major advantages to either side, you look at the key moments. There were too many key moments in this match. It would take you all day. You can't say, well, this was the turning point or that was the turning point because it was turning point after turning point after turn turning point after turning point. So many close games, so many opportunities, so many break points, championship points both ways. It was a beautiful, beautiful mess. An unbelievable display, physically, mentally, technically, and I'll leave it at that. Big week coming up. U.S. Open Power Rankings. Mailbag on Wednesday. Keep an eye out on the Community tab. On Tuesday. And US Open Preview. Draw comes out Thursday. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.